so tomorrow, tomorrow, oh, I'm not on. I am on. Tomorrow they start ripping up the parking lot, and uh, the next two Sundays that will be a mess, which seems like a big project. But 40 years ago, this church was meeting at the Sheraton Hotel. And uh, Pastor Heckman was leading the church in building a building in 1976. It was dedicated. The little plaque is out there. And next Sunday, I'm actually going to be in Phoenix doing a retreat for uh, Tom Alexander and his college and career group. But it, it will be a great honor for this church. Pastor Heckman will be preaching here next Sunday. John Rock will be here uh, announcing him, introducing him, and we're, uh, it's just going to be a great week. And he'll tell a little more of the story of what happened 40 years ago. Today... Could you stand with me in honor of God's word? I'm going to need some prayer today. Um, here is the problem with going through, directly through a book. You have to, you can't just like say, we're going to skip over part of it. And this week is Romans 9. It is the most controversial passage in the entire uh, Bible. You will see why. There, Christians that love God and love the Word of God have very different interpretations of what Romans 9 is actually saying. And so um, this, is part of, this is part of the Bible. This is part of it, and we need to think about it and talk about it. And so get your seatbelt on. Here we go. <clears throat> Starting in Romans eight twenty nine and 30. For those who God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. Now chapter 9, starting in verse 10. Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet... Before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, human being, to talk back to God? 
Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does the potter have the right? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? And then down to verse 30. What then shall we say that the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith? But the people of Israel who pursued the law as the way of righteousness have not gained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. See why I need prayer today? Father, we love you. We pray that you would pour out your Holy Spirit. You said there's anointing, an anointing to teach within each of us. That, that no man is actually our, our teacher, that, that men can be used, but it's the Holy Spirit that makes it real. The Holy Spirit instructs our mind. The Holy Spirit shows us truth. Lord, we live in a day of spiritual confusion. Would you bring great clarity to every heart, to every mind, as to who you save, how you save, and your character in salvation. Please, God, pour out your spirit and help us. Help me, help us. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you. Could we be seated? There is no way to do this text without getting theological. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask you, if you're one of those people that, you know, I, that's for somebody else, that is, that is not for me. I'm just going to urge you to stay on board. I'm just going to urge you to, to stay engaged. You, you can understand all of this, and it is very, well, theology is the study of God. A.W. Tozer said, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. That, that whoever you think God is that it will put a, a ceiling on your, on your life. And, and that Jesus wants to reveal more of who God actually is and what his character is and how he works. And so sometimes we have to press through a little difficulty to, to get there. So, point one. Has God predestined to save a select few? Augustine is the first one to introduce this idea from Romans 9. Martin Luther uh, believed it. He, he called it the awful doctrine. 
Why would you ever believe an awful doctrine? Because Martin Luther, it was only the Bible. It's not what you think about the Bible or what you wish the Bible said. You take the Bible for what it is. And he felt this is what Romans 9 was saying, that God had predestined to save a select few. And that was just what the Bible said. You didn't argue with it. John Calvin systematized it. He systematized this belief, this whole belief system that really reads the Bible through Romans 9. It starts with Romans 9 as the foundation, and every other piece fits into reading the Bible that way. Many of our leading teachers in this land today are believe this. Are, are, we would call them Calvinists. Um, Many of my friends believe this. I've had some very spirited conversations with my, some of my buddies on this. And I really don't know why we have them, because I never budge them an inch, and they're certainly not going to budge me an inch. Anyway, whatever. Here's, uh, here is John Calvin on this. On, it kind of sums up the position. All men are not created for the same end. But some are foreordained to eternal life, others to eternal damnation. So accordingly, as every man was created for the one end or the other, we say he was elected. That is, predestinated to life or reprobated. That is, predestined, predestinated to damnation. To succinctly understand Calvinism and the Calvinistic approach, uh, the the acronym acronym TULIP is very helpful. T is total depravity. Men are unable, they're dead in their sins. People are dead in their sins. They are unable to respond to God on their own. U is unconditional election. That God, for only his own purpose, his own desire, hidden in his own wisdom, chose some. And they are going to make it. They are, unconditional election means they don't do anything. They don't do, they play no role in their salvation. They, without condition, God has elected them from eternity past. L means limited atonement. That Christ actually, in reality, only died for those that would be saved. Those that were the elect. I is irresistible grace. When saving grace comes to you, You cannot resist it. It is God's purpose. And when grace has been released to save you, you will be saved. And then uh, P is perseverance of the saints. Once saved, you will always be saved. you, You persevere because you are saved. If anybody ever falls away, it is only a sign that they were never really saved. So that is TULIP. That is... Calvinism in a nutshell. One of our, a very important person in our history is George Whitfield. George Whitfield 
led America into the first great awakening. The pastor on this side was Jonathan Edwards, um, probably one of the most famous preachers in American history. Both Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards were staunch Calvinists. George Whitfield was from England. He was part of John Wesley's Holy Club at Oxford. And John Wesley, who was also very instrumental in the first great awakening, um, had a different position. And it was an Arminius position. Um, John Wesley is very, very prolific. And so he, he wrote an open letter to George Whitfield on his the position of Calvinism. And open letter just means it was written to him, but it was for everybody. Everybody could read it. Everybody could copy it. And the title of the, this open letter was Calvinism Calmly Considered. It had 90 points. <laughs> Within it, he, he made this statement, Mr. Whitfield, you've made God out to be worse than the devil. The devil only tempts people to sin. You, you have God making them sin. So you can, this is a f- spirited debate. It's a fiery debate, but especially among their disciples. And so it was when George Whitfield passed away that one of John Wesley's disciples asked him after all of these years of maintaining their position, do you, do you even think that you will see George Whitfield in heaven? And John Whitfield said, I'm quite certain I won't. And this guy's like, that's what I thought. John Wesley went on and he said, George Whitfield will be so close to the throne of God, will be covered in so much glory that I doubt I will be able to see him in heaven. He actually did George Whitfield's funeral. They had agreed with each other that whoever died first, they would do the other person's funeral. It is very important that we learn how to agree to disagree on non-essentials. This is one of those non-essentials where people have opinions, sometimes very strong opinions, but what we share in Jesus Christ is much greater than our differences. And so we can have great fellowship I've got great fellowship with, with people that have this opinion. Dealing with the text. I remember when I was in Faustin and I, I had uh, Shane, Shane uh, Holden. Pastor Shane is, he pastors now in Onalaska, Wisconsin. Just a great E-free church. It's amazing what God's doing there, but... He, uh, he, was, he served as the youth pastor in Boston when I was the senior pastor. And frankly, the, the whole town was 1,500 people. There was just not a lot going on during the week. So I'd sit in my office. He'd sit in his office and whatever happened. And he came over one morning. He said, he said I, think, I think Calvinism might be true. I'm like, what, what do you mean? He said, and I think he was reading Romans 9. And he said, I just don't, I don't see any way around this. I said, all right. I said, let's do this. You go in your office. 
I will stay here and take, take an hour. I want you to find every passage you can find that confirms Calvinism. I will find every passage that refutes it. And we'll meet together and we'll talk about it. And so we did that. And uh, this week, as I was letting the staff know where I was going, and I said, I just, I just really, I want to get the cookies and get them on the bottom shelf where everybody can, can get to them and, and that it's not over anybody's head. And Andrew says this, uh, please don't do that. He said, he said, I've had so much fun in Christian Life College. He, he's, he's enrolled in our Christian Life College. He said, uh, just grappling with it and wrestling it. He said, don't bring the cookies to the bottom shelf. Bring the cookie dough to the bottom shelf. Because let, let people wrestle with it themselves. Let people come to their own conclusions and their own convictions. And so, so this is what this morning is. It's Calvinism calmly considered. I'm not telling you, you don't have to believe a certain way to be part of this church. We love having you here. In fact, sometimes it strengthens the body, the body to have people that are in unity, but have different positions on some of the non-essentials. So um, this is not the city church official position. This is, this is my position. Okay, here we go. So we have to talk about, in, in Wesley's refutation of Whitfield, the 90 points, his main point is, how can you throw out the rest of the Bible? The whole rest of the Bible, the tenor of the whole rest of the Bible is that God loves everybody, that salvation is for everybody, that, that there's going to be a judgment because people are accountable for their own sins, their own decisions, and their own rejection of Christ. How can you throw all that away and run it all through Romans 9? And that's kind of his main gist in these 90 points. Um. So, but I'm not going to go into all those. We're, we're on Romans 9. Let's talk about Romans 9. What was God saying in his inspired word through Paul in Romans chapter 9? Well, he begins. So this is point two. What is Paul saying in Romans 9? He begins with three points to tear down human thinking about salvation. The first point he makes is that God has mercy on whomever he has mercy, and he hardens whomever he hardens. And he gives two examples. One is Jacob and Esau. God chose before they were born which one the covenant was going to come through. Now, it's a, we are put off by the language Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. All that word hated there means is that God chose one and in comparison did not choose the other. The same exact word is used when Jesus says, unless you hate your father, mother, wife, children, and your own life, you cannot be my disciple. It is in preference to me, he's saying. He's commanded us everywhere to love our families, to honor our mom and dad. He does not mean hate. He means in preference to me. God made a choice. And his choice was Jacob. The covenant would come through Jacob. God has the right to choose because he's God. 
God chose for his own sovereign purpose to temporarily harden Pharaoh so that he might display his power. He is God. He can have mercy on whoever he wants to have mercy. He can harden whoever he wants to harden. It does not matter what man thinks, what man wills, or what man desires. The only thing that's important concerning salvation is what God decides because he is God. Point two is man's opinion of God doesn't matter. He talks about the potter and the clay. He says, How can, the clay can't talk back. The clay doesn't talk back and say, why are you making me this? The potter gets to make that pot however he wants to. And the clay has no opinion in it. And then thirdly, and this is his strongest argument, is even if it is arbitrary and unjust to us, God doesn't owe us an explanation. Even if, he said, God decided beforehand that he would simply endure with some that were, that were going to be creatures of wrath, that he designed them for wrath, and he just put up with them, patiently endured them until his glory would be displayed by them experiencing his wrath. Even then, even if God did it that way, even if God did it completely arbitrary and it seemed absolutely unjust to us, we still would have nothing to say in the matter. He is dismantling human opinion, human philosophy, human rights. He is going very, very strong here. And and we're going to find out why in just a moment. But he's going very, very strong. He's dismantling all human ideas for salvation. And then he explains who God chooses to show mercy to and who he chooses to harden. Starting in verse 30. Why not? And the, and the answer to the question is, why didn't Israel find right standing with God? Here's why. Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. And the one who believes in him will never be put to shame. He chooses to have mercy on those who put their faith in Christ, and he chooses to harden those who in their pride stumble over Christ. They stumble over him. They, they don't need a savior. They don't want a savior. They're going to do it themselves. They're going to do it through the law. And they stumble. Their own pride causes them to stumble over Christ. And God chooses to harden them. So, here's, here's how the whole thing got set up. This is going to stretch all of our minds. God's foreknowledge of Adam and Eve's sin 
was not causative. All that means is this. Before God made anybody, he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin. But his knowing beforehand, that's what foreknowledge is, is to know something beforehand, did not cause Adam and Eve to sin. Now, this is a contradiction in our minds. They were free moral agents, but he foreknew their sin. Uh, Romans 11, 33 and 34. Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And the clear answer is no one does. There's no one in our puny little minds that can grasp that God lives outside of time, that he lives in eternity, that the end and the beginning are the same to him. It is impossible to grasp that. You, we have to trust God. We, it should be part of our worship that he is God. Based on his foreknowledge of Adam and Eve's sin, he predestined or... Another way to talk about predestination is simply this. He pre-planned. He planned three things based on his foreknowledge of their sin. So before he's even made anybody, he has pre-planned three things to happen. Number one, that Jesus Christ would die on a cross. Revelation 13.8 says that Christ was crucified before the foundation of the world. It was already planned. It says at just the right time, at God's Kairos time, Jesus appeared on earth and he made a sacrifice for sin. But it was already planned. It was already in the heart of God. It was pre-planned that in the foreknowledge of Adam and Eve's sin, that there would be a redeemer, and the whole Old Testament prophesies about this coming redeemer. Secondly, God pre-planned or predestinated that whosoever believes would be saved. God does not predestine people. He predestines Events. He predestined the cross. He predestined that whosoever would believe would be saved. Listen to Romans chapter 10. So this is the next chapter, 10 through 13. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. Justification comes because you believe. And it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentiles. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For, verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, these were all in my list that I gave to Shane. The, 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 the whole understanding of Paul is this is available to anyone, verse 11, 
God's going to bless all who call on him, verse 12, and everyone, verse 13, who calls on the name of the Lord will be justified in Christ. God predestined that whosoever believes in Jesus would be justified and would become his child and would be conformed to the image of Christ. He also predestinated, preplanned that whoever rejects Christ would experience God's wrath. Now, in our text, Paul says this, what if God chose to make some for wrath? When you say what if, do you know what you're doing? You're giving a hypothetical situation. You are not, he's not saying this is how God did it. He's saying, what if God did it that way? What would you have to say about it? Why would your opinion matter if God chose to do it that way? What if God chose to do it that way? Does Paul believe that's the way God did it? Well, let me just say this. That God was waiting, just enduring them patiently so that he could show his wrath. This is not what Paul believed. We've already covered it. Romans 2, 4, and 5. Listen to what Romans 2, 4, 5. So he said it earlier in the book. Oh, do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when his righteous judgment will be revealed. What did Paul believe? He believed that God in his kindness was reaching out to everybody. And the, and, and the only reason you would experience wrath was not because God stored up wrath for you to show his glory in wrath. You did it yourself. You stored up wrath. God didn't. You stored up wrath for yourself because your stubborn unwillingness to repent, you, to respond to his kindness. You stayed, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't. And there's going to be no one to blame but yourself. Pastor Tom, how, how do you know for sure and once again, you're going to all, everybody has to figure it out themselves. Well, why, why are you so convinced that Paul does not believe that God decided to choose a select few and predestined them to be saved? Why? It's called hermeneutics, where you use scripture to interpret scripture. If something seems to be saying this, you got to take in other places with the same thing. So let's take Paul. Let's take what Paul said in another place. This is what he said in 1 Timothy 2, 2, 4. He said, it's God's desire that all people come to the truth and be saved. To me, that, that settles it. The desire of God from the beginning, for you and for me, is that we would come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. So what's Paul doing here? Why is he making such a strong argument, especially when it could be misinterpreted in so many ways? Why do we need to thank Augustine. We need to thank Luther. We need to thank Calvin. 
It's called the Protestant Reformation. Why do we need to thank them? Here's why. There is something called syncretism. Syncretism simply means where you take two things and you put them together, okay? Syncretism is when you've got Jesus and then you add to Jesus other things and you have a religion that based, based on Jesus, it's based on naming Jesus, it might even be based on him dying for our sins, but you have added something else and, and the two go together and that is your Christian faith. Paul is absolutely on fire in this book. What is happening, and we're going to talk about the Gentiles' problems next week, or next time I preach in two weeks, but this week he's talking about the Jewish problem in the church. The Jews, even those who are saved, are struggling with how do we relate to the law? That we're, we, The law is our tradition. The law is our heritage. They don't want to throw away the law. So Jesus plus circumcision. Jesus plus keeping the Sabbath. Jesus plus eating the right foods. Jesus, Jesus plus. And they want to, they want to add Jesus to their own works-based righteousness based on the law. And Paul is saying, Stop it. He says it clearly in Romans eleven six. He says, listen, if it's grace and works, then it is no longer grace. It is works. And it is so easy to, in our mind, because this is what makes sense to us, that God is going to save good people. And yeah, Jesus helps us to be good people, but it's about being a good person. And Paul says, stop it. Stop it. I know that that's what you think. I know that that's what human beings think. It doesn't matter what human beings think. It doesn't matter how you would do it or how you think it should be. It doesn't matter. God gets to show mercy however he wants to show mercy. And this is how he chose to do it. He chose to send his son who made the ultimate sacrifice and he is now pouring mercy and he's, he's inviting everybody, come to Christ. This is where the mercy is. He has raised up his name above every name. Every name, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Listen, to the glory of God the Father. God the Father decided what the gospel was going to be. Syncretism is so easy. This is what had happened to the church. The church added works. It added Jesus and, and now, and so there were all kinds of laws that, that people had to keep and do. And, and then, even then, you were still a sinner. So you, you, you had to, you didn't go to hell, you went to purgatory. Because only the saints went right to heaven. Everybody else went to this holding place. And then to get out of purgatory, you still paid the price for your, your sins. And because and that just seems right. And so that, then they introduced indulgences where you could, you could actually give money to the church to help get your, your loved ones that were in purgatory out of purgatory. And, and 
the, the greatest, they were raising money to build St. Peter's and Tetzel was the greatest raiser of money. And he said, every time a coin clinks in the coffer, another soul is liberated from purgatory. And he would have, it was shameless. It was absolutely shameless. And well-meaning, simple people that loved God would give all of their money to get there. And, and the, the guilt of you, you are, they are being tortured right now. And it's, it's because of you. And Martin Luther started reading the Bible. <laughs> they made him start reading the Bible. <laughs> because he was so depressed. He was trying to please God through keeping being good enough. And it was a disaster. So they made him. They're like, this is not working for you. He was fasting and praying all the time. This isn't working for you. you you're going to teach the Bible now. And he started teaching the Bible. And he, start, he reads the book of Romans. He's like, oh, my <laughs> My salvation has nothing to do with our works. It has to do with God's work. It has to do with what Jesus did. God loves people. And the Protestant Reformation began on this truth. Grace alone. Grace alone saves. So a few weeks ago... Whenever I was going out to Seattle, Alice and I were going out to Seattle to uh, the National Convention, and I'm, Alice, Alice likes the window, and she likes me to be next to the stranger, okay? So, <laughs> so I don't know if any men ever have your wife appoint a seat for you, but I'm in the middle, and she gets to be on the, the window, which is fine with me, because I, I, I don't really care. Anyway, so I'm sitting next to a guy who's actually from this area. When we start chat, he loves to chat, and he is the friendliest guy. And we talk about his job, we talk about race cars, we talk about everything that he wants to talk about. And then I switch the topic to church, and he is equally willing to talk about spiritual things. And, I, and it's just great. And so we're talking about um, his church background, and he, he grew up in... Uh, 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 he grew up Catholic. He grew up Catholic. He went to Catholic school. He went to Catholic college. A lot of his good friends were priests. He was very comfortable talking about the, the things of God. And I'm like, I said, bro, I, I was raised Catholic as well. And I said, can I ask you a, a couple personal questions? And he's like, yeah, have at it. And I'm are you at the place in your spiritual life where if you died, you'd know you'd go to heaven? He thought about it, and he's like, and he relists. Well, hello. I went to Catholic schools. I went to Catholic college. Several of my presents, friends are priests. I think I'll be going to heaven. All right, so you're standing before God, and, and what would you say to him? He says, why should I let you into heaven? And he gave the same answer that I would have given way back when. I'm a good person. I've never, I've never really purposely hurt other people. I've faithfully attended church. I pray at night. I'm like, that's a great, that's a very similar answer to, to what I would have given. But the Bible the Bible actually has a very different answer than what you have stated. 
I said, it would probably take me 15 minutes to fully write out for you what the Bible says, and uh, I would write it out for you, and then I would give it to you about how the Bible says somebody goes to heaven. I said, if, you're, if you want to see it. He's like, I'd love to see it. So I take him through the bridge illustration. I draw the whole thing out for him. And he starts telling me about his wife. And he says, you know, my wife, she goes to all the renewal meetings. She goes to the Catholic renewal thing. She even goes to other churches. And she's, she really likes this stuff. And she's, he, he, I'm going through this thing. He's like, I need to show this to my wife. I absolutely need to show this to my wife. And uh, so I get, I get to the very end. And, and, and if you've seen the bridge before, at the end, it's got three people. One doesn't want anything to do with God. One is saying glory because they have taken their trust out of their good works and out of their religion and out of their morality. And they have put their trust completely in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross and the provision that God has made for us. That's the glory of And the third person is at the door. And they, they, they want to be over here, but they, they know they're not. And I said... I, I said, Mike, I said, which of these three do you think you are? And he said, you want to know the truth? I actually think I am the glory person. I think I am this person. He said, this, this is so helpful, and I'm going to share this with my wife. Thank you for showing this to me. Do you know what I think happened to Mike? I think you read the Gospels, you get exposed to the Gospels, you get exposed to what what Paul says, and it is. It's Jesus, 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 Jesus. But then our own natural thinking takes over, and we we believe in Jesus. We really do believe in Jesus. We really do believe in what he did, but we think it's got to be Jesus plus what we do. And I think what happened during the bridge illustration is things got dismantled. Human reasoning and the human way got dismantled and he felt like, and I don't, I don't know for sure, but it, it, it felt to me like the Holy Spirit was so there showing him that Jesus is enough to save us. Jesus plus nothing saves us. All right, so how, this is point three, last point, we're almost done. How does God sovereignly save? I have made an illustration up. I, I've, I've, it's in my devotional this week, if you get my devotional. If you want my devotional, just fill out that little connect card and Pastor Tom's devotional, I want it, we'll get you this to you. But I'm going to give you two theologies of salvation in this little illustration because all I want you to have is the cookie dough. You, de- you decide what you believe. So here we go. A mighty ship named Salvation is crossing the ocean. Its captain is Jesus and its destination is heaven. Two men tell Jesus they are going overboard because they resent the confinement of the ship. Each swims away from the ship 
in a different direction, and at some point, both will surely drown if not rescued. What will the captain do? In one view, the captain sends out a professional swimmer, the Holy Spirit, with a life preserver, the gospel, to one of the two men. The professional swimmer wakes up the man that's the call, who has passed out. That's the call of God. And informs him of the captain's great love and rescue. He then places him on top of the life preserver while holding him on it. Jesus pulls the rope connected to the life preserver until this man is safely on the ship. This man had no part in his own salvation. Jesus did it all. But what about the other man who is going to drown? For his own sovereign purpose, the captain allows the second man to drown. Why? The captain knew these men would go overboard before the ship sailed and had predestined one of them to be rescued to display his great mercy while knowing the other would experience his wrath. The captain didn't owe salvation to either one. It would have been just to let them both drown. But God demonstrates his mercy by saving some. That's one view. Here is the second view. In the other view, the captain sends out a professional swimmer to both men and brings a life preserver to both. The professional swimmer has been instructed by the captain to wake up both men and to inform them of the great danger they're in, as well as of the rescue the captain has arranged for them because of his great love. Each man is told by the swimmer that he must participate in his own salvation by grabbing the life preserver. The swimmer will assist, the professional swimmer, the Holy Spirit, will assist them in holding on to the life preserver while the captain pulls them to the ship. But if they don't want to return to the ship, he will eventually have to leave them alone and let them drown. In this scenario, the captain once again knew before the ship sailed that both men would go overboard. But instead of predestining one to be saved, he predestined that salvation would be offered to both. He would wake both up by his call, but would only save those who agreed to participate in their rescue by believing the gospel. Friends, God did not just foreknow Adam and Eve's sin. He foreknew your sin. He foreknew my sin. The whole section of Romans 9 to 11 is concluded with this thought in verse 32. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. So God has given Everyone, He foreknew that everyone would be disobedient. 
And it, God had an intention to offer mercy to all, to everyone. So, there's one part of the tulip that I believe John Calvin had right, and that's total depravity. Human beings are totally depraved concerning salvation. There is a general grace to obey your conscience. There's a general grace to follow the longs of the land. There's a general grace to love your kids and take care of them. But concerning salvation, human beings are totally depraved. Jesus said it this way. No one comes to the Father unless the, the Son draws them. Or no one comes to the Son unless the Father draws them. It, it is impossible for you to get saved. You do not choose Jesus. That would be humanism. That would be you being in charge. Jesus did this. And at my own little time, I will decide if and when I want to, probably right before I die, because I want to have fun until then. I don't want to be confined to that ship called the church. You and I are not just drowning in the water. We are passed out. Make no mistake about it. We are passed out. The call of God has to come for you to even know that you're in trouble. The call of God has to come for you to, even, to know that Jesus died for you. This is, this is supernatural. This is Jesus knocking on your door. This is Jesus inviting you. Guys, this is amazing when God comes to a human life and shows them there's a decision that needs to be made. There is a salvation that has been offered in his great love and there is a, an agreement that needs to be made on our side. So I was, I was a, a freshman in college. It was finals week and there was a knock on my door. I go to the door, and it's this guy who lives down the hall named Greg, and he has been witnessing to me about Jesus. We talked about it. I went down to his Bible study, argued with him. I was sure I was right. He was wrong. Um, and, uh, but I, I was going through something really, really disillusioning. I had gone to Whitewater for the weekend and partied with my friends and, and, uh, all my, cause all my friends were in Whitewater. I felt like I was all alone in Madison and, um, we got very, very drunk and things happened to me that made it very evident to me that my friends were not real friends. And I came back, and I am questioning life. I'm sitting on my dorm room bed. I am questioning life. I'm questioning why I'm even at the UW. Why am I majoring in business? I have a fairly good idea that it was because I wanted to make a lot of money. Anyway, um, I don't know. I don't know what's going on. And this knock comes to the door, and it's Greg. And he says, I'd, I'd like to talk. I'd like to sit down and talk with you. And I'm like, he said, why don't we go down to my room? And I'm like, yeah, let's go down to here. My room is a mess. And he, I, we get down to here. He's an engineer. My, oh my, his books are in order. I mean, everything was, it, there was just peace in that room. It was just like, why would I ever want to be in my room when I could be in his room? Anyway, um, so he takes me through 
this little track called the four spiritual laws. And, and uh, one is God loves you and he has a plan for your life. Two is that sin has separated you from God. And three is that Christ died on the cross for our sins. And number, and I grew up in church. I, I knew all three of those. The, the fourth one I'd never seen. The fourth one was this. It's Revelation 3.20, that Jesus stands at the door and knocks and that we have to open the door. We have to participate. And he had two circles at the end and one, one circle um, was a, a life that had ass in the, on the throne in the middle. That was self and all the dots, which were goals and purposes were, were messed up. And there was a small cross on the outside. And that meant Christ is outside of this life. Self is running the life. And the other circle had Christ on the throne. And there was a small ass instead of this huge ass. It was a small ass submitting to Christ and all the dots were messed up. And he says to me, which one of these two circles represents your life? (laughs) For all of my religion, for all my prayers at night and going on Sunday, there was no question in my mind. There was a huge ass in the middle of my life. I was running my life. And I was equally sure that the dots were completely messed up. So I had a moment of, of great honesty. I said, it, 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 it's that one. And then he said this, which one do you want it to be? And the Holy Spirit made it so real to me that if if God is God and if Jesus loves me and if Jesus died for me, he, he deserves the center place in my life. It makes sense that he would be the only one that would be able to order that life. And I said, you know what? I actually think I, I want that one. It was the one with Christ in the middle. And we prayed together. He led me in the sinner's prayer and, and my life changed. Little by little by little. Sometimes it was three steps forward, two steps back. But I knew from that time on what the gospel was. That I was saved. Not based on my anything, but on what Jesus did for me. So could we have every head bowed and every eye closed? The worship team can come. you are here today and you know that God is calling you, that Jesus is knocking. You may have no idea why you know. You may have no idea. It's not like there's a voice. It's not like there's a, uh, you just, you know that God is the one that has you in this service and that you know that you need God's mercy and that self has been in the middle of your life and you want Jesus to be in the middle. That's called repentance. I want to give him the rightful place and I want him to save me. I don't want to stumble over my pride that says I can do this myself. I don't want to stumble in pride. I want to say, wow, God, you love me. Jesus died for me. I accept your provision. I believe on your provision for me. 
If that is you, I'd like to pray for you. Would you just raise your hand real high right now? I got that hand and 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 this hand. God bless you. And this hand over here. Anybody else by upraised hand? We're going to pray in just a moment. I got you, bro. Anybody else by upraised hand? God bless you, ma'am. Anybody else? Jesus is here. Jesus is knocking. Jesus is inviting. He, he, he loves you. But what about all the stuff I've done? Doesn't, it doesn't quench his love. He loves you as much as the day that he died for you on the cross. Anybody else by upraised hand? We're going to pray in just a moment. Would everybody that raised their hand just put your hand on your heart right now and pray something like this. Jesus, thank you for loving me. Thank you for dying for me on the cross. I know I'm a sinner. I know I've been my own Lord, my own boss. Today I repent. I ask you to come into my life. I ask you to save me. I ask you to wash me. I receive your mercy, Father, offered to me in Christ. I receive that gift of eternal life right now by faith in Jesus' name. Amen. Could we stand together? Can we do this song? Now we'll close. He became sin who knew no sin that we might become his righteousness. He humbled himself and carried the cross. Your mercy clear to me again. Get rid of all of the fog that has distracted me. He had been in the midst of great sin. And he said, restore that joy, God, of your love, of your salvation. That I am your beloved child. That you have set your affection on me. That I'm going to heaven when I die. Restore the joy and let all the attractions and distractions of this life fade. That I might burn for you. The next verse is, Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Lord, thank you for a chance to share with Mike on that airplane. Father, would you, would you let your gospel go out? Would you let us throw it out like seeds, generously, joyfully, wherever we are, to just, to just let people know God loves you and Jesus died for you and, and there's, a, there's something more. And Lord, let us live lives that people would ask us a reason for the hope that is in us. And God, help us to give an answer with respect and with tenderness. Thank you for making a way, not just for the whole world, but for me. Thank you, Jesus, that you're calling everybody. But Jesus, let it never become old to us. You called me. You made your love known to me. Your Holy Spirit came after me. Now, Lord, keep us on that ship that's heading to heaven. We thank you for it in Jesus' name.
Amen. We're going to have uh, prayer teams. If you want more prayer, come on down to the front. God bless you. Have a great day.